I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Corey Petty, the Chief Security Officer at Status with me today. We're going to have a great conversation about uh, distributed and decentralized systems and about Web3. Corey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, looking forward to this conversation. Web3 is something that's really interesting to me um, and to a lot of people out there. We've had this revolution in the idea of programmable money, but we've also uh, at the same time been had this revolution of ideas about really enumerating and incentivizing people out there for all the work and all the things that they put online and creating better privacy uh, mechanisms as well, too. So there's a lot we're going to talk about. But what I'd love for you to do is if you could give us a little bit of a background on yourself and how you kind of came into this world of distributed centralized systems of digital assets. Yeah, sure. So I'll try to keep this a little brief. Um, I came into Bitcoin, I want to say around 2011, um, while I was doing my graduate uh, graduate work uh, for my PhD at Texas Tech. Stumbled upon it through a random, I think, uh, TED talk or something. Um, and since a lot of my work is in um, supercomputing uh, for my PhD, I, I was fascinated by the computational problem that Bitcoin was solving, that being like consensus and, and actually using digital scarcity through um, Nakamoto consensus. Um, I did some mining, trying to like experiment, understand like mining is a really good way early on, at least it was back then to get a, a really like hands-on approach to how things work, ins and outs, UX, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, you know, quickly fell on his face because it, you know, it went towards ASICs and so on and so forth. Um, after I finished, I went to uh, do a postdoc in Brazil. And since I couldn't keep up with my friends who I was mining with because I was physically um, located somewhere far away from them, we decided to start a podcast uh, called the Bitcoin Podcast, which mm-hmm. really enabled me to keep track and keep it, keep my finger on the pulse of what was going on in the entire space. And back then, like there wasn't a lot going on, so it was easy right. to understand all of it, or at least like keep up with all of it. Um, and that gave me also exposure to a lot of people to ask questions. Uh, directly to as opposed to trying to read the kind of disparate documentation or verbiage mm-hmm. online. Uh, and that grew into a, a network of podcasts and kind of kept me up to date. Uh, and then I realized that I really wanted to spend the rest of my life, my career, um, really focusing and diving in on this technology and kind of uh, where it's going and what it may be and be on the front line of it. So I, I left academia and decided to try and join the workforce specifically towards data science and blockchain. And uh, got a few jobs doing that, um, 
here in Maryland where I reside now. And um, after kind of not really enjoying the larger corporate organizational structure, mm-hmm. I, uh, I left and by circum- like by happenstance, I was talking with Jared, the CEO of Status, and he asked what I did, which was uh, more security-related stuff. And um, that's something they were looking for. And I was always a fan of Status from the beginning, mm. um, from before their ICO. And here I am. And I, I, I've been very happy with uh, working for this company and what we're trying to do. I, I think it's really important. So... One, I always love having a fellow podcaster on. I'm always open to that. So anyone who's listening who also has a podcast in this space, come on the show. Talking to you, Peter McCormack. It's time for us to have a show. Um, so what I'd love for you to kind of give an overview and you know, obviously try to keep it brief because a lot of the listeners of the show are institutional investors that are starting to understand this world. How would you describe status? in a kind of very brief, maybe one to two minute kind of synopsis. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those who listen to your show or any of the kind of Web3 forward shows, uh, it's, it's all of this stuff is a very different paradigm of building, uh, especially the, at, at an infrastructure layer, which puts the, like the end user first. Uh, it's built on cryptographic primitives. It's very decentralized. It puts a lot of responsibility and it changes the way we interact with applications. Very, like very fundamentally. And what that means is that when you build applications, they're like the interface to all of this stuff is needs to be brand new. When you try and think about um, how you present this stuff to the user, it's, it's difficult. And what status aims to be, um, I think is an interface, a portal into the web three world uh, so that we can, we can give people, uh, like, especially from a mobile experience, um, a very intuitive, easy way to interact with all these technologies that are building. We focus on Ethereum because that's that's leading the way and in, in kind of, in our opinion, uh, the decentralized applications, the Web3. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what most people think about when they think about Web3 is they think about blockchains. And there's two other pillars to this, in our opinion, and that's decentralized messaging as well as uh, a decentralized storage. So we try and bring all three of those together to give like a unifying experience, almost like a WeChat-like experience on mobile mm-hmm. to allow you to do everything from one application using this technology. And I think this is important is that a lot of people out there, you know, we are a population of about 7.8 billion. And if I'm not mistaken, over half of that already have a tablet or a smartphone in their hands. And they will run a uh, search, whether it's on Google or their local regional search uh, engine that everyone uses. And people don't understand the layers of complexity that go into that, that there is all these different processes, whether it's indexing data, whether it's, you know, query, whether it's all the other components of it, there are layers upon layers. And in those layers, you have kind of depositories of, you know, information on yourself whether, you know, it's Corey who's looking up, you know, the sports, you know, kind of scores for, you know, his favorite teams in Texas, or if it's me looking up, you know, my, the scores for the Mets, um, all of that kind of gets into these depositories. Um, and so it's a very complex web and a lot of people don't understand the complexity. They just go on Google and they want to search and they want that result to come within, you know, microseconds. So, just out of, you know, kind of your understanding, what kind of a lift is it to kind of replicate that in a distributed and decentralized manner? Oh, 
that's it's terribly difficult. Um, like you said, like uh, most people don't understand the complexities of the internet that we have it today. Um, and, and in my opinion, that infrastructure forces a specific type of uh, social interaction and like an emergent social behavior uh, but that like moves towards what you just discussed. And that's like very, very large aggregations of data um, by very, very few. Uh, just that that happens just as a, as a, as a function of how you build things on the traditional web. Um, and it ends up with you not being able to own your digital self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the ideals of the centralized web is turning that on its head where you own all of it and you can build applications that give you hopefully a very similar experience, but uh, the power is more at the edges as opposed to in the hands of very few. Right. Uh, but rebuilding that um, from the ground up is very different. Because um, when you start pushing information towards the edges and you give people a lot of power and responsibility, like you, like they have to take, they have to take that responsibility. They need Mm -hmm. to be willing to um, secure their data. They need to be willing to secure their passwords and private, all private keys are just long passwords. Right. And that's a different behavior that um, social culture isn't quite caught up with yet. And then it's up to the developers, the people who are building these things from, you know, layer zero to layer whatever we end up going to, to try and build that in such a way that um, you provide users options and in, in an intuitive way so they can make those decisions appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's really, really, really hard to do, especially if you, and then that's just the user experience, like actually having it scale yeah. to the world is a very, very difficult thing because mobile devices aren't very powerful. They're getting more powerful, but like, uh, like, it's, it's variable across the globe, um, the availability of technology, the availability of signal, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And this stuff has to work on all these devices if we want this to truly work. And so that's kind of our mission is to try and get this working in an intuitive way to yeah. all of those people who just maybe have a mobile phone and a weak signal. Yeah, I think it's, I, I've been guilty of it too after GDPR passed. And now you go to all these websites and they say, well, your cookies are going to be stored. Do you care about that? And honestly, sometimes you're just trying to rush through something. You're trying to get on a site. You're trying to purchase something. And it's kind of like, you know, when you get those Apple, you know, if you're using iOS, you know, they say, oh, here's a new version. It does this, this, and this. Do you approve of that? And you just click on yes. You don't even really look at a lot of the terms and conditions. Everyone does that. There's, I know. There's nobody, there's very few people who don't do that. Yep. And I agree with you. It's, we have to get to a period in time where people actually say, well, wait a second. You know, what am I losing here? And I love that you said digital self because I've been using that terminology for a few years now. And so I agree with you is that we have to get to a point where people start to say, well, my digital self is really important and I need to make sure that, you know, wherever I'm going, that that digital self is protected. And I think we're getting there slowly. Um, I think we're starting to see more of an emphasis on privacy. And especially here in the States, you have started to see some kind of emphasis on some of the larger players in the technology space getting slapped on the wrist for some of their practices in regards to data privacy. So I think we're starting to get there slowly. Um, And I agree with you that it is a tectonic shift that we need to really uh, go through. But I want to get more into the dynamics of status. One of that is, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, is uh, WAKU. Um, which is a peer-to-peer messaging protocol that removes centralized choke points from your messages. 
by removing centralized third parties, your messages are your own and more private and secure. And so I would love for you to kind of walk through this a little bit and then also discuss how this is different than some of the other peer-to-peer messaging platforms that we're starting to see like Telegram. Sure, no problem. Uh, so it starts off with um, like you can create a messaging protocol that is encrypted, end-to-end encrypted, uh, that, that does a tremendous amount of security and privacy just based on um, private keys alone. Uh, but when you have a network like that, which is, I would say, all of the major uh, messaging platforms, like anyone that is end-to-end encrypted, does a good job. They mostly use the signal protocol for perfect forward secrecy. And you know, you have asymmetric cryptography that allows you to know that like who you're sending to uh, is is who you think they are. And no one in the middle can really see those messages because they don't have the keys to unlock the messages as they travel through the network. But what those messengers don't quite get is the metadata around those, how those messages travel, the route they take to get from point A to point B, and all the people in between who can read the metadata of those packages, and then what information they can gather about those people. Um, you can get a lot of information just by looking at network traffic. And so what Waku is, which is a, a iteration on Whisper, which was the original decentralized messaging protocol of Ethereum, um, and the original white paper, is a way to try and obscure that information a little more by not allowing people to really understand uh, or give further and further less information about the route that message is taking through the network so that it's very difficult to see um, what public channels you're interested in as a user, what people you're talking to when you're talking to one-on-one conversations or private group conversations. It's looking at a message on the Waku network traveling around. And it's it's not strictly limited to just like communication or talking or chat or texts, right? This is just generalized communication network. Um, when looking at messages on the network, it's very difficult to differentiate what that message is intended for, who sent it, and where it's going, mm-hmm. which is a very important thing, especially in, I think, the modern climate as we have a tremendous amount of surveillance of the networks themselves to try and pull out metadata information about who's doing what and why they're doing it. All right. I agree. And so... Another component of what you're building at Status is secure browsing. So when browsing Web3, which is, again is what we're all trying to build towards, end user data and browsing information is not accessible by any third parties without consent. That's the ideal. Any transactions made while using the Status browser implement the same security standards and best practices used in the Status wallet, which we'll talk about in a second. Some people are starting to get this idea we've had brave which has been in our world now for a few years and you're starting to see how brave is starting to implement those things they have their own token and they have some of the features of privacy so i'm curious in this world we're starting to see browsers um really try to protect the user or enumerate and incentivize the user how would you say that you stand next to or differentiate uh, towards Brave? Uh, big shout out to Brave, by the way. They've done a tremendous job. They're my they're my main browser uh, on my desktop. Um, so, like, I, I really like what they're doing and the initiative they're trying to make towards uh, introducing more private and secure features by default to the end user. And, and we try and do the same thing. So, um, whenever you use a browser, especially in the context of Web three. Um, 
you're giving up a lot of information potentially, right? You go to a web page, and that web page may want to track your 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 mouse movement, how you click, what you mm-hmm. spend time on, um, how far you go into certain things, and and what Brave does uh, for those that don't know is they try and give you the option to block all this stuff. Yep. Um, they want like so that. A, a typical browser uh, will try and capture as much information about what you're interested in to then feed it to marketers to then serve you very, very targeted ads. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do on the back end of a browser to try and stop that by, you know, stopping some cookies, stopping some uh, tracking mechanisms, so on and so forth. So when you open up a new browser in Brave, it tells you what, how many things they've stopped, how much you know bandwidth they've saved you, how much time they've maybe saved you through advertisements. And we try and do very similar things by introducing defaults in the browser um, that protect the user from a lot of the stuff that's happening on the back end that they don't necessarily understand. And when you add Web3 to this, um, you're introducing money. And so you have to be really careful because the internet is a very gross place in terms of um, things trying to get you without, you without you knowing. And so when you introduce your wallet and finances into that as a potential way, like as a potential route for someone to get to, you got to be real careful that a website you go to doesn't try and hijack your private keys if they're exposed somehow or try and get you to sign a transaction to send them money that looks like something else. And so we're very careful about um, kind of the, the, the allowances and permissions we give uh, sites that you visit uh, and, and how those things are shown to you on the screen so that you can make good informed decisions as you browse the internet without having to be like hijacked by something that's uh, not what you think it is. And I think it's really interesting that this ideal of incorporating search and browsing and money. Correct me if I'm wrong, if I if I know my history. I think Mark Andreessen has talked about this in the early days of Mosaic and Netscape. They wanted to try to do that, correct? I believe so too, but I, I, I couldn't I couldn't be 100% certain on that. I mean, of course yeah. they would. Like e-commerce has blown up because they were finally able to kind of get some type of payments online and you like at the look at the world today it's a it's a tremendous amount of e-commerce but it's based on the rails of a of an old system um that sends a lot of very valuable information over the wire Mm -hmm. i agree and so i want to talk about the wallet so again what's really interesting about status it's kind of like a trifecta you have waku you have your browser and then you have the wallet talk about the components of the integrated ethereum wallet yeah and that's i think um the wallet is a very key part. Uh, in the end, uh, a wallet is a password manager. Um, that, that's all it is. It, it allows you to under, like hold your passwords and keep them safe, and then expose them to the right places. And decentralized web, like we, like I said before, is really the the combination of all three of those things. You need messaging, ephemeral messaging. You need the ability to transact value uh, through blockchains. And with you know, with smart contracts being rules around how you transact value, and you need to be able to like discover things and discover people and communities you want to be in, and that that's kind of the whole the whole package and what what we try to provide. And key management or password management is like the fundamental part of all of these things because at the foundational layer, it's all built on the same cryptography, and so you can have the same cryptography fuel. All of these different features, whether it be encrypted messaging or sending or signing transactions on the blockchain, so on and so forth, uh, maybe like even some in some cases, which we're expanding on, is like encrypting some of the behavior that you're doing through a different uh, path of that cryptography, all through a single seed phrase, 
a single piece of information you need to keep safe that enables your digital identity to have a tremendous amount of um, complexity and subtlety uh, in, in this in this new paradigm. And so, like the wallet is a way for you to like not only manage Ethereum keys, uh, your like, Ethereum and your Ethereum tokens. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. later on down the line, we'll add uh, new networks. Who knows? Because it's all the same cryptography. But it also like enables you to chat and maintain your identity, your digital identity in the space too, um, while giving you context about like what you have in your wallet, um, who you're talking to, your transaction history, so on and so forth, and and trying to keep that metadata safe as well. All right. And so let's get into how this all works. And so. I want to talk about your consensus mechanisms. I want to hear about the governance and also the token. So the token is has various different features, uh, and it gives the end user, I guess if you can call it that, the holder of the token, uh, certain capabilities. So let's hear about the consensus, let's hear about the governance, and then let's hear about what the token enables those holders to do. What do you mean, what do you mean by consensus, really? So... so when you talk about consensus, you know, there is obviously proof of work, there's proof of stake, there is delegated proof of stake, there are different ways to get the the network to operate. And there are obviously validators on the network that do certain things. So I'm just kind of curious how it all works. Oh, great. This is actually somewhat of a um, mis, uh, miscommunication or misunderstanding that we, we typically get. Status, the network itself, um, doesn't isn't a blockchain. It's a, it's a gossip-based network that only passes messages. There is no consensus on the messaging part of all of this, right? Um, and so there's no, like, it's, it's ephemeral messaging. So these messages don't live forever in any way, shape, or form uh, on a blockchain. And there's no consensus about how, how the network needs to come into agreement on these things. And what we're doing in, the, in, in, in status is providing an interface to Ethereum. So we, we built... Um, using a lot of the same tools that Ethereum uses, but the mm-hmm. network itself isn't Ethereum. And then we provide access to it in a way that like, we know how to translate Ethereum and then give the user the ability to use tokens, sign transactions and craft them appropriately or visit decentralized applications and expose their wallet to those decentralized applications in a secure way so they can use the dApps and DeFi or whatever the you know soup du jour is of the, mm-hmm. of the day. Um, but we're not actually doing any of that on the network itself. And so mm-hmm. we're not really um, relegated to handling those issues. You don't have right. to, you don't have to have a miner to run the thing. Um, it's useful to point your, your, your um, application to a node, whether it be our nodes or a node, a node that you run yourself mm-hmm. so that when you craft a transaction, you send it to a node that can then relay it to the broader network. What that also does is it allows us to expand it a lot of ways. Um, one of our, one of our initiatives right now, and a big part of our research and resources goes towards developing an, uh, um, an F2 client. So we have a very lightweight, we will have a very lightweight um, F2 client um, when Ethereum 2 rolls out. And we're on the bleeding edge of that. And that's supposed to be for resource-constrained devices so that potentially parts of a node can live on your mobile. Uh, and then it, it also not having too much of a fingerprint by draining your battery or bandwidth or something like that. Uh, but we're not constrained to that. I'd like to emphasize that. There's no, can you talk a little bit more about mobile? Because this is something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate as much that there are efforts to make a lot of these things live on mobile devices instead of just your desktop or your 
your mainframe, if you will. Yeah. So uh, as it stands today, uh, there aren't really any blockchains that allow you to kind of run a full node on your mobile device and still use it. Uh, it'll drain your battery. It'll drain your data. Uh, it won't, won't allow you to do anything. And the power of phones just isn't that good. And I think a lot of the movements, um, especially with like F2 and some of the layer two situations is to try and change that because phones are way more ubiquitous um, in terms of availability across the globe, but they're way more resource constrained in a sense that like you have to pay for bandwidth. Batteries aren't that long. The computational power isn't near what it is on a desktop or a laptop or, or a server running in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the network, connection is also kind of spotty depends on where you are you may not have service so how are you expected to run a node or get messages or do things in the context of maybe not even having connection to the outside world and so when you build for these things and you have to because this is what everyone has and will continue to have and it will grow uh you have to keep these things in mind and, and and design things at the very lower layers accordingly so that they can still have a very seamless um, relatively easy time interacting with these networks in whatever world context they live in or whatever resources they have available to them. And that that means delegating some of those resources to someone who can run a more consistent, uh, powerful node, mm-hmm. then they can do that. But they do that with um, with like fully allowing that person to them. They prove permissions and they understand that that's happening right. as opposed to that just happening automatically and uh, they have no control over it. Right. And so let's also talk about the the token. As I mentioned, I'd like to know, it seems like there's a, a few different things that the token allows the holder to have access to. So what are those? Yeah, that, and that ties in governance too, uh, which you wanted to talk about. So like at Status, we do a tremendous amount of things because uh, because of all this is new, we build from the infrastructure layer all the way up to the end user application layer, uh, mobile clients, desktop clients in the works. Uh, we do decentralized applications. We do infrastructure, all of it, right? Even developer tools. Um, but And we try and build these things in a, in a modular way such that anyone can take any individual piece and go use it themselves. It's all open source work. It should work in its own context. And so if it helps the broader community do things, we want them to use it. What ST does is, is it does a few things. One, it ties all of these features together. So it's, it hopes to make, and I'm using a buzzword here, a synergistic effect of all of these pieces coming together, making the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and hopefully, as an organization, like, there's no such thing as like real decentralization if you have a tremendous dependence upon the organization that does the thing. And what a token allows you to do is eventually make it such that we as status like the mm-hmm. official status core contributors can disappear and the network runs itself based on the people who use the network. And that's the whole goal is to remove ourselves as much as possible such that the network who's using the features, the services and so on and so forth doesn't rely on us at all. And so that comes into like a governance play, uh, funding play, uh, so on and so forth. So that we've started to build DAO-like structures organizational structures to allow us to kind of see what gets funded, what people are interested in, make network level decisions all through um, staking the token or using the token in some way, because these things aren't finished. So it's hard to say exactly how it's going to work. Um, but the goal is to remove ourselves completely and allow the, the, the stakeholders being people who hold a token to do all of it themselves because they're interested, invested into the network. 
that's very interesting. And uh, I I'm love- sorry, I, I meant to add um, at, at the client layer. Layer, um, mm-hmm. we also have additional features in the client to allow you to do certain things with the use of SMT, both on the network and um, kind of identifying yourself more. So you can uh, you can do things like you can buy stickers using SMT. These stickers mm-hmm. are created by uh, anyone who wants to. It's an open it's an open market. So we have kind of a a free market using SMT for people who to make stickers and chats, and then people who buy them, and then the people who make them actually get all the funding and none of and we don't. Um, you can stake SNT to get a username, a, u- a unique username that allows you to be identified and found within the network for chatting very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fully, fully controlled by the user. And when you're done, you can release the stake, the name, and get all your money back. Uh, and things like this. So we add it to, we add, use SNT to add features to the contact to make the chatting context more fun mm-hmm. and interesting. As well as like we have things in the in the in the pipeline for like tribute to talk, so that people can't really get a hold of you unless they pay the fee that you set up. So that way, it helps people kind of um, take advantage of their influence right. by uh, allowing people to give them a path to get at them, but only for a certain fee on what they think they're worth. A little like uh, maybe Earn joining did. channels. Pardon. That's a little bit like how Earn did that, correct? Correct. But it's just that's not a, a single use feature. It's just something right. it's just one of the things you can do when you tie all of this stuff together. And there's a right. tremendous amount of other things that you can do um, that we have. Like, there's so many ideas. And it's really about trying to prioritize these things that uh, to get people uh, kind of open and having a good time and then keeping them in the network. But we have uh, I, I can't even list all the things we have in, in mind to make communicating with your friends, business partners, whatever community you're in. Uh, more fun, immersive, and and more real. And I, I think in terms of just a question that might pop up in people's minds is that, and again, this is unfortunate because this has just been a narrative that's gone through people's minds who are not necessarily spending all of their days and nights in this space. But in terms of a chat feature like this that is incorporating privacy and in some respects censorship resistance, have you all thought about those that might be using this for things that are less than copacetic, more nefarious? And how would you kind of work on that? How would you ensure that people weren't using this for quote unquote bad things? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, and it's something that I, I try and educate people on quite a bit. Um, now, let me start with a, a quick analogy, and that is the, the development of nuclear power. Um, anytime you build a, pool, a tool um, that has tremendous power, it can be used for uh, a myriad of reasons. Now, nuclear power may not be the best case scenario because, or like the best example because it was originally developed for the, for, the, for the bomb. But it turns out that that power is incredibly useful and very good in some circumstances, but it can also be incredibly destructive. And it's the people who use it and how they use it that make that difference. Um, but once the cat's out of the bag, it's going to be used. And so it's very important for the people who are developing these things um, to have the right ethos and hard principles in mind to build it the right way first and to be aware of what can be done with it once it's built. Now, when you think about the Web3 technology and all of this stuff, and you increase privacy and security of uh, messages and conversations and transactions, it's the same situation where it's an incredible power given to individuals that 
takes away a lot of the control and surveillance that, you know, um, potential governing bodies would like to use to stop really bad activity. But it's going to happen. The future is going to be where you cannot extract information about transactions happening online or messages because cryptography is so strong. And what we want to do is try and enable that because it's going to happen, but do it with a very, very principled and ethical manner. And in the process of doing that, we understand um, how those governing bodies have to change themselves because they can't keep using the same tricks Mm -hmm. because the technology has changed so much. And so what we can do is help inform them what they can do instead of what they used to do because it's no longer going to work. Right. Yep. I I think it's a complex web and something that will, I agree with you. I think that's a great analogy with nuclear Um, and, you know, with great innovation. um, I've always talked about this. When you have new technology, and I think I've said this a few times, but for those that are listening, one of the first mass adopters of the auto automobile were bank robbers because they saw that they could get away faster than using a horse and buggy. And so, you know, new technology, unfortunately, has been uh, adopted by those that want to use it for negative effect, you know, on society first, and then it gets a larger scope. And then we start seeing, you know, better use cases. But I think the nuclear uh, analogy is, is spot on for sure. So as we're wrapping up, where can people who are trying to learn more about status and maybe want to start, you know, trying to use some of these things, where can people go? Oh, great. Um, first, you can download the application and, the, and all the app stores. Um, just go to the app stores. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to find because of other, you know, search criteria. So if you search status private, it'll pop right up. You can download it and join the network for free. It doesn't require anything. It's a relatively quick onboarding process and you can start chatting today. Um, chatting, browsing, transacting, so on and so forth. And if you would learn, like to learn more information, just go to status.im or statusnetwork.com. And we have um, all of our all of our code lives on GitHub. We have we, we lead month after month in terms of the development on GitHub across the, across the board in blockchain by quite a large margin. You can see that by looking at um, kind of how many commits, lines of code, so on and so forth that are happening. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount happening. Um, and you can always find me. Uh, so if you get on status, I'm Petty. So if you search P-E-T-T-Y, you can DM me directly and I'm more than happy to answer your questions. We have a Discord. That's also bridged to status. So if you don't feel like using status, you can use you can join our community Discord and get chatting right away. Um, or if you can find me on Twitter at Core Petty, and I'm happy to point you in the right direction depending on what you're interested in. Awesome. This was Corey Petty from Status. Really interesting talking about Web3 and about all the different components that they're working on, including chat and browsing. Corey, thanks for coming on. It sounds like you guys have a lot going on there. So maybe in a few months, we'll catch up and see how everything's rolling out. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. 
and let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn and I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.